0: You're listening to episode 62 of the National Centre for Writing podcast. Every week, we tell stories about writers and discuss writing techniques. It's Friday, 20th of September, here at Dragon Hall in Norwich. I'm Simon Jones, Digital Marketing Manager here at the Centre. Steph isn't here this week as she's on a well deserved post Noiridge break. Last weekend was indeed the Noiridge Crime Writing Festival, with Gerald, UEA, and Dragon Hall here in Norwich, packed with crime writing authors and readers. It was a wonderful four days of genre celebration and exploration, and Noiridge will of course be back next year. If you missed it this year, don't fret though, as we have lots of amazing podcast episodes coming up, including exclusive interviews with Sarah Collins, Julia Crouch, Auntie Tuomainen, and Irsa Sigurdodotir. Today we have something particularly special in the form of George Alagaya's Noiridge 2019 lecture. Each year we invite a writer to deliver the lecture, You can listen to Val McDermott's from last year, back in episode 14 of the pod. George is of course best known for his journalistic work with the BBC, in particular as presenter of BBC News at Six. He's just released his first work of fiction, The Burning Land, and in his lecture he talks about the power of fiction to better illuminate facts, and how the book complements the work he's done as a journalist throughout his career. So here is George Alagaya delivering the 2019 Noiridge Lecture at the University of East Anglia.
1: Thank you very much and good evening. It's amazing to be here, um, all the more so, because it's a place that's produced such fantastic um, writer. So I'm standing here right now wondering what the hell I'm doing uh, in this room and wishing I'd stuck to my, my day job, which, as you know, is, as Henry said, is, is, is doing the news. And the lovely thing about the studio... I and mean, people always think, oh, you know, he sits there and talks to five million people every day. So he must be good at this public speaking lark. And, um, of course, the studio is nice and cosy. It's dark. And all I have for company... Um, well, I think there's six robots actually, and they just, you know, they do exactly what they're told. They don't sort of stare at you or judge you or question you. Somebody presses a button, um, and there's a floor manager, so it's all very cosy. So here I am looking at the whites of your eyes, and hoping this evening works out okay. I mean, the one thing I don't have, which is nice, is that thing in my ear, which is like my kind of lifeline to what we call the gallery. And it's amazing what you hear through that thing. I mean, like, you know, who's fancy going out for a curry tonight? <laughs> um, who's going out with somebody they shouldn't be going out with? All sorts of things. And um, people are always wanting to know how you, how you do the business of talking while having, having that in your ear. And in fact, um, and as some of you may know, I'm, I'm, I'm living with cancer at the moment, and uh, it all started, my diagnosis with this doctor sort of getting on the marigolds and getting ready for that um, examination and um, so I tell myself you know Georgie Boyd just just relax think of England this thing is going to be over very very soon and as he sort of got his thing and got going um, he actually said to me um, do you know what I really don't know how you manage to talk (laughs) (laughs) and, and have that thing in your ear to which I I had to say was a dance I'd easier than trying to talk while you've got, you know, doing what you're doing. (laughs) Um, Anyway, um, I'm not um, the first journalist to turn my hand to to fiction, and no doubt I won't be be the last. So why did I do it? Well, for me, fiction is a way of, and I think I heard Henry say this, kind of... um, exploring the bits between my dispatches uh, as a reporter. The thing about journalism, and quite rightly so, um, I say that quite rightly so, given what we know about fake news and so on, we deal in facts. We go out, we find them, we smell them, we touch them, and when we make a judgment about them, we then go and report them. But facts aren't, aren't always the same thing as the truth. I can't say, like some of my newspaper colleagues, um, I can't say, sources tell me that land is being grabbed by people um, I- around the world. I've actually got to film it, and if you can't film it, you can't do that story. So I found through my journalism, and what is it, I've been at it for, I don't know, 30 years or so, um, possibly, probably more, actually, um, that there, is, there are the facts and then there is the truth. And, and fiction has allowed me to get beyond the fact and tell something that I know to be true and to, and to explore that. So fiction has allowed me to get closer to the answer than I uh, ever was able um, uh, to, to do as, as a journalist. Um, it's not, these are not my words. A brilliant writer, uh, Elif Shafak, put it rather more eloquently. Storytellers, she said, are trying to render the invisible more visible and bring closer that which seems afar. Fiction allowed me to get under the the skin to think about people's motivations. What really drives people to do things? The passion, the pride, the prejudice, the lust, the anger, the frustration. You can't put all that into a a, a report of of two minutes 30. And I was thinking about this the other day when we had those reports about Robert Mugabe's death, the former president of Zimbabwe, and I'd lived in Zimbabwe in, in, in the 80s. And, you know, the reports are the usual stuff, dictator, tyrant, etc. But does that really explain the, the Mugabe story? What would it happen to you if you were not allowed, as he wasn't, to bury your 10-year-old son because you were in jail? What would that do to you? What sort of man would that make you? I'm not making any justifications. to you. I'm just trying to explore, say, explore with you um, what, 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 what the difference between fact and truth is. Or um, well, how about... Do you remember all of us, 2012, the year of the Olympics? How we all told ourselves what a wonderful nation we were. We were a global nation, welcoming to the world. We smiled for two weeks. So proud of us. We brought these games in on time and, I think, pretty much uh, on, on budget. Wind the tape on four years. It's 2016. We have a referendum. And if the pundits are to be believed, we're the laughingstock of the world. We're all racists. We're small-minded, little Englanders, and so on. Now, those both things can't be true, or if they are true, there's a narrative that links them. We are still the same nation. It's not a new generation. It's only four years between those two events. And that, I think, is the kind of thing that I think fiction can do. So how do powerless people find strength? How does a woman navigate a man's world? And I'm hoping that you will find that in the Burning Land, uh, the answers to those questions. And of course, there's. Uh, actually, you're probably too posh an audience. But does anyone here watch the One Show? Yeah. Oh, you do. Well, as as I was on the One Show, and as Matt Baker on the One Show said, there is a racy bit in this in in this book. Now, and I I, I put it right at the end, so you do have you've got to you've got to read the book before you get to. It. <laughs> And, and no, I will not answer the question my, my older sister asked me. said, did you really do that? <laughs> um, when I started off as a, as a foreign correspondent, I... Um, so this is um, in the mid-1980s. I caught the tail end of the wars over ideology. Capitalism versus communism. America versus the Soviet Union. They conducted, those two countries, proxy wars in places like Angola. The superpowers moved the chess pieces of military might in Washington and Moscow, but it was ordinary people in faraway places that did the dying. I saw that for myself. Then came the wars for wealth. In Sierra Leone and Liberia, it was diamonds. In Zaire, which is now the Democratic Republic of Congo, it was coltan and copper, cobalt and gold. Again, I watched as the warlords trampled over anything and anyone to get what they wanted. And now? Well, a young reporter starting out now might find that we're entering a new phase of conflict in which the land itself will become as precious as the gems and minerals we mine from it. As the environmental catastrophe takes root, as our sources of food and water begin to diminish, there will be an existential battle over resources. Prepare for the eco-wars. And fiction, I think, will have its part to play in telling that story In the Burning Land, I imagine the first skirmishes in this new battle taking place in South Africa. Venture capitalists, private equity kingpins, Chinese government agencies and Gulf sheikhs, they are all at it, eyeing up parcels of land. Some are motivated only by profit, others by the need to ensure a reliable supply of food for their burgeoning populations back home. But they face a campaign of resistance. And it's led by a clandestine cell of activists who call themselves the Land Collective. The only trail the collective leaves behind is a series of anonymous online statements. And here is the first one posted after it has carried out an act of sabotage. Today, a new struggle has begun. Just over 100 years ago, in 1913, the Boers passed a law to rob us of our land. Now we must fight for it again. In Mpumalanga province, a message has been delivered. We did not win our freedom to see the land taken away from us again. We, the people of South Africa, will not sit and watch our precious inheritance sold to the highest bidder. Today, in Mpumalanga, we fired the first shot in our fight against the new colonialism. Let them be warned, those who will sell our land to foreigners, the people of South Africa are ready to rise up again. But what might that resistance look like? Will it be like the opposition to that older form of conquest, imperialism? Will it be a Mandela emerging from 27 years in jail with his message of reconciliation? Will it be like a Gandhi leading a salt march of nonviolent protest? Or might it be something like Martin Luther King dreaming of a better future for his people? Or might it be something altogether more sinister, more uncontrolled? In the Burning Land, the call to action you have just heard certainly galvanises some. But then the law of unintended consequences takes over. One of the country's bright young hopes is murdered. Lacedi Motlanchi's murder was one of those pivotal moments that seemed destined to change the course of a country's trajectory. There are some events, a, a law passed, a speech delivered, a transgression exposed, which are deemed significant only in retrospect, like looking back on a life and realising the point at which things had taken a turn for the better or worse. This was different. As news of the murder spread across South Africa, the people knew they could be, there could be no going back to business as usual. Lacedi Motlanchi was more than a man. He was an idea, a symbol. And with his death, that idea had been tarnished. Lacedi had been one of freedom's children. Born in the 80s, his life mirrored the changes in South Africa as apartheid's pernicious laws were expunged from the statutes. A quick and confident boy, he'd once been interviewed by a TV crew, doing a piece on the role schools are playing in changing attitudes to race. The reporter had asked a class of teenagers to define racism. In a flash, he said he had stuck up his hand. He'd pointed to one of only three white boys in the class and said, "Well, you know, racism is like, like you know, if I'm unkind to Darren, you know, call him names like like Whitey and so on." The clip had made it onto the evening news. The reversal of the conventional definition of racism, that white people could be the victims, from the lips of a black child seemed to speak volumes for the miraculous journey South Africa was making. And now he was dead. Even in a country inured to violent crime and a murder-rape that, is, that saw it perpetually leading the wrong kind of international league table, the notion that Lacedi Motlanci would one day become a victim, another notch on the grim statistics board was unthinkable. There wasn't a person in the country, whether they spent their time in a township Shabin or in a gated mansion, who did not know who Laceri Motlanchi was and what he represented. So who, in their right mind, would want him dead? So somebody, anybody, must be blamed. There has to be revenge. The police, desperate to show they're doing their job, arrest a suspect a migrant worker, a man from neighbouring Mozambique. That single act unleashes a wave of xenophobia. Anyone with a foreign accent or an unusual name becomes a target. So who are these poor souls? They are the marginal people, the cleaners and labourers, the servants and night shift workers who creep around the shadow lands of every nation on earth. From Nigerian traders and Congolese pastors to Mozambican laborers and Somali shopkeepers, they lived in the catch-22 of the black economy, where they were in the city, but not of it. When there's trouble, how easy it is to turn on them, to say we would be better off without them. How many times, in how many different countries, and in how many different languages, had those words send them back, be used, And how many people around the world had heard them and been terrified by what they meant. Those three words robbed them of their identities as individuals, as families and neighbours, even as friends. Them and not us. Them over there. Search them, catch them, arrest them, deport them, kill them. That was all it took. Shift the people from the column marked us to the one marked them and everything became possible justifiable. Now, I spent much of my reporting years in, in war zones, whether it was Somalia or Liberia, Afghanistan or Congo, and the one thing I learned, and as I said earlier, I've been at it for quite a while, the one thing above all that I learned is that this thing we call civilization is about that deep, it's, it's skin deep. And let me give you a couple of examples. Remember Hurricane Katrina? The, in, in New Orleans. And remember how just within days, things started to break, break down. People started looting, people started hoarding food, taking it away from neighbors, making sure they, their own families were looked after. There were even reports of gunshots. And this in a country, the richest country on earth, where there was never really any prospect that anybody would ultimately go without, and yet that began to happen. We'll take our own continent, Bosnia in the 1990s, how quickly that descended into chaos. How was it possible that in our continent, in our time, rape became a weapon of war? And then there was Liberia. I saw how the warlords manipulated children, young boys, to become soldiers. I've never been so scared in my life, and I've spent a lot of time in in, in difficult situations, been confronted with a 13, 14-year-old holding a Kalashnikov. Bang, bang, you're dead. That's in the playground. When it's for real and the gun is loaded, imagine, you're a tantrum away from disaster. Now, there is some violence in this book, a couple of episodes, but I would say this in in, in defence. I mean, at first I felt I needed to to put put it in but the other thing is there's nothing there that i've not seen with my own eyes civilization is as fragile as a flower it's like a flower and and we need to nurture it care for it water it look after it brush it up the wrong way and the petals begin to fall and th- as i say 30 years as, as a reporter and and that, that much became obvious to me. And depressingly, I have to say, I wrote this book, obviously, a couple, of, a few years ago. Um, my kind of fiction in South Africa, has, as you've you probably heard, has turned to fact in South Africa. There have been attacks on, on foreigners, Nigerians mainly this time. Um, a friend of mine, who's a human rights lawyer, shares a building, um, an office, with a group of people who help migrant workers, give advice. And she couldn't go into her office last week because the building had been torched. So South Africa is both literally and metaphorically ablaze. It is this maelstrom of violence and prejudice that confronts one woman, Lindy Seaton, when she arrives in Johannesburg. She is the daughter of white South Africans who fled to London when they fell foul of the apartheid institutions, uh, authorities. rather. She works as a mediator for South Trust, an organisation dedicated to conflict resolution around the world. Now, when I began thinking about writing this book, it is this woman, Lindy, who came to mind first. Um, The Burning Land is a book about resistance. It's about protest. It is about the land itself. But it is also Lindy's story. And here um, she is when we first meet her. Lindy Seaton stood out from the crowd if you met her just once you were unlikely to forget her it was the intensity with which she seemed to relate to other people never wholly comfortable in front of a crowd she came into her own one-on-one she had the right questions at the right moments it was a reflex a way of coping with the awkwardness she always felt when she met someone for the first time It was an apparent intimacy which Lindy did not intend and from which she would all too often have to extricate herself. Self-control had always seemed a strength to her, but it invariably felt like a dowdy little virtue against the expansive mood that was her family's natural state. She'd spent so many years being the practical child, the one who injected a note of realism into every conversation, that she could no longer tell whether that was the way she was wired or whether it was merely a reaction to her family. What if she was always going to be the serious little girl, the one who wanted to be spontaneous and free, but who so often ret- retreated into studied reliability? So once in South Africa, Lindy is reunited with her childhood friend, uh, Kahisa Rapabani. Now he's a charity worker helping small farmers in the east of the country And together, Lindy and Cahiso find themselves at the heart of this battle for the soul of the nation. The professional becomes deeply personal. They have just days to save themselves and the country they both love. Now, this breakdown in law and order is not what the clandestine cell of activists who began the campaign against land sales had wanted or envisaged. It was never meant to be like this. Sabotage, yes. Propaganda, yes. All of that and more. But not this, not murder. This hideous mob violence was never part of the plan. It is the truth that the leader of the cell must confront. He needed the time and space to think, above all to understand how an idea hatched in the edifying glow of idealism had been transmuted into this uncontrolled and ugly sequence of events, like the scientific perfection of nuclear fission, turned into the hateful vengeance of Hiroshima. When they used to plan their sabotage, it was only ever one operation at a time. Success or failure was judged according to whether or not that particular mission was accomplished. He realised he'd never really stood back to look at the whole or to see how each act had set off its own chain reaction. It was like knowing the ingredients in a recipe but never understanding what happened in the mixing and the making. He'd never thought that some might want to reinvent the campaign to go freelance. But his biggest miscalculation had been to underestimate the lengths to which those who stood to gain most from the sale of land to foreign interests would go, their power, their determination. Of course they were going to hit back. Of course blood would be spilled. How naive he'd been. A protest movement, you see, is not an army. It isn't about command and control. It's organic, it grows, it changes. You can see how mu- that might happen. I mean, during the, the struggle against apartheid, the ANC, the main um, uh, movement there, it had a kind of code about what constituted a revolutionary target, as they called it. And in simple terms, it was, uh, the code was, there was n- to be no indiscriminate violence, and yet that did, did happen. People went off freelance. And just today on the news, you probably heard it too, there was was a report about a splinter group from Extinction Rebellion going off and doing its own thing at Heathrow. So Lindy Seaton's mission is to find this person, the leader of the cell. After all, if you're going to mediate, you have to know who the two sides are. But this search becomes a journey of self-discovery. Once abroad, once in South Africa, she finds she can escape the person and the personality that imprisons her at home. And aren't we all like that a little bit? You go to a place where nobody knows you, you escape the conventions and the expectations that constrain us at home, and you begin to explore the person you would rather be. I, mean, I know I've been a bit like that. I've been reinvented, or I've reinvented myself from the Immigrant boy to the English man you see standing before you now, from the, from the timid boy that I was to the person who hangs around in the, in the public eye today. And that's all to do with time and place, this ability to move and then explore it. And this is precisely what happens to Lindy. The equivocation, the weighing up of competing arguments, the things that had always made her the careful but dependable, dependable one, seem to have gone She noticed the change in herself in an almost physical way. For once she'd been forced to rely on instinct and she'd found the experience liberating. She imagined it was like being well high on some drug. Lindy was was free, free of herself. Lindy felt good about herself and wondered if she'd ever really known the feeling before. So the Burning Land is is set in South Africa, a country uh, in which I live for four dramatic years. There were the first years of uh, freedom, and they were Mandela's years. But I think this story, The Burning Land, the one I tell in The Burning Land, has a resonance for wherever there is a struggle over land. And as I said at the beginning, I think that struggle, that conflict is going to get worse and worse. Think Sri Lanka, where I was born. There is a struggle for land there. Think Israelis and Palestinians. Isn't that a struggle for land? And just recently, remember, if you... Think about the news reports a couple of weeks ago. We had those unprecedented forest fires in Brazil. And then the war of words that followed between the country's president, Jair Bolsonaro, and President Emmanuel Macron, who at that occasion was speaking for the G7. Now, I'm no fan of President Bolsonaro's policies, but neither am I surprised by his accusation that Macron in particular and the rich world in general were exhibiting what he called, and I quote, a colonialist mentality. And this was after Monsieur Macron seemed to appropriate the Amazon for the rich world. Our house is burning, he said. Our house, our house is burning. And now this invokes a kind of cozy image of togetherness, of common ownership. Indeed, as far back as 1999, our own Tony Blair put the case for what he called, I'm quoting again, the beginnings of a new doctrine of international community. In that speech, he questioned one of the old pillars of international relations, the principle of non-interference. In short, this was back in 1999, he argued that there were circumstances in which it would be right to intervene. So could that really come to pass? Imagine the consequences. The rich world interfering in the affairs of the poor world, justified by the claim that it was necessary to sort out the problem of the environment, a problem largely caused by the rich world in the first place. Then put yourself in a Brazilian shoes. How would you feel? Our house is burning. You see, I think we're a long way from the global village implied in that phrase, our house is burning. This is not what I've seen, not from Kinshasa, not from Tacloban, not from... (coughs) monrovia and not from mumbai the truth is that there is almost nothing in common between the cling filmed mouse clicking fuel guzzling citizens of the north and the hoe wielding back broken sweatshop people of the south it is not the global village that is the hallmark of our times but globalization the expansion of business across borders and cultures in the pursuit of bringing to the branded shopping malls of the west a bewildering array of products at prices that do little justice to those who help produce them. I couldn't say that on the 6th, now, could I? (laughs) Um, So, the eco-wars, I think, will throw up their own challenges. When will voices raised in rebellion turn into fists thrown in anger? Is it really so outlandish to imagine that someone, somewhere will plan an act of violence in the name of the environment. Think of a not too distant future in which the people smugglers might not be profiteers, but good people. Good people who believe that it is a moral duty to give safe passage to those fleeing the raging temperatures. What will government do then? Or will some decide that only authoritarian government can match the relentless onslaught of climate catastrophe? From J.D. Ballard all the way back in 1962, through Michael Crichton and John Lanchester writers have already begun to um, address these questions. And my guess is that they are about to be joined by many, many more. Now, I said earlier that I'd spent much of my reporting years in conflict and people often come up to me and say, God, you must get really, really depressed about the state of the world after what you've seen, the places you've been to, And actually I'm not. It is precisely because I've been to those places. It's precisely because in in those remote, desolate places I have seen a thousand little miracles each day. It is in those places that I've been welcomed with with an open hand and a warm heart. I believe in those places in the worst of all possible times I have touched and seen the human spirit. You know, when I look back on, on my <coughs> career as a journalist, as a foreign correspondent, I, can't, I I know I remember 9-11 and I remember the genocide and so on, but actually I don't remember events. I remember some people. Some people who, against all the odds, did something rather special. And, I'll, and I... There's one woman, I remember her name, Yanai Dola, and I met her in the Banjagara hills of Mali. There are hills up the Dogon country in Mali, in West Africa. And it was a third year of a drought, and I'd been sent out to do a story about this. And every day, Yanai would go down the, the, the mountainside to the valley, and she would dig the unyielding earth hard with this rusty hoe and dig away and say this year this year it will be different this year the ground will break this year the rains will come this year i will have some food and i will have enough to sell and with that money my children will go to school that is human spirit well there was a woman i met in a small village called gufgadud in somalia in the civil war then and the famine that followed And I sat with this woman who was trying to decide which of her children she would feed and which she would let go because there wasn't enough food for any of that. And she made that decision and she retained her dignity through all of it and allowed me to witness her her thinking and try to explain it to me in words. That is the human spirit. So, no, I'm not um, at all a pessimist. And neither is, I mentioned Lindy's friend, childhood friend, Kahisa Rappabani. Neither is he. He looks back one day at one of the good times that he'd had in South Africa. He remembered the time when he'd helped to organise an end-of-harvest braai, South Africa's version of a barbecue, on a farm right on the border with Mozambique. It was the first year of a profit-sharing scheme that Cahisa had helped put together. The area had been blessed with good rains and a bountiful crop. That evening, as a blood-orange sky had turned purple, as shadows grew longer and fainter till they just seeped away into the soil, one of the migrant workers had brought out his mbira, a traditional handheld musical instrument, a finger piano, as some called it. Cahisa had sat on the edge of the group entranced by this vision of a different future the farmer and his wife afrikaners both sat near the fire on the other side of the circle their children huddled next to the housemaid and some of the workers children an old man roomy eyes staring into the embers pulled at a zol a homemade cigarette spiced with the comforting fragrance of dacha Women spread polyester blankets over their bare legs, and young men shared the last few bottles of beer. Calloused thumbs plucked at the metal tines of the imbira, shaped like the fat handles of a tablespoon, and picked out a tune that had been written in another century in the great language of the coast, Swahili. Nobody understood the words, but all were moved by the ballad, the lament of a young suitor who knows he will not wed his angel, his malika for want of a good fortune. Kahisa had looked across at the farmer and was sure he'd seen the man's eyes well up with a tenderness so far removed from the caricature of his people. The morning, he knew, would expose again the starkness of his country's struggle to find a middle ground between great wealth and great poverty, but for that evening, under that deep and star-studded African sky, Cahiso let himself dream. Yes, dream. Dream of another country, one in which hope triumphed over despair and idealism scored a victory over cynicism. Thank you very much.
0: Thanks for listening and huge thanks to George. You can, of course, find out more about Noiridge over on the website at noiridge.co.uk. In the meantime, you can send in questions to the National Centre for Writing and find out more about what we do over on Twitter and Instagram at Writers Centre, search for our page on Facebook, or head over to our website at nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. If you want to get in touch with me directly, you can find me on Twitter at Tarnamus, and please do remember to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast, because it does help other writers and readers to find it. Thanks again, keep writing, and I'll catch you on the next episode when I'm talking to Auntie Tuomainen.